All right, so we're coming to the end of 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians emphasizes, and this serves as sort of my flyover of the two as well. Okay, so 1 Corinthians serves as a book that focuses on the temple, the church as the temple of God and the new covenant era. And so the glory, the glory of God should be on display in the temple. And so church order and process are dealt with overwhelmingly in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, in the print, there's this focus upon the idea of strength giving, of comfort uh, through suffering so that we can continue to display the glory of God as the temple of God. So there's not a buckling under, there's not a, a failure, not a collapsing. And the first part of the book, we talked about how it's sort of the happy part of the book. It's Paul writing to those who are in the majority, those who have accepted his rebukes and have disciplined a member of the church that needed to be disciplined, someone who was engaged in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And so the church had excommunicated that man. And now Paul is saying, look, he's repented, let him back in. Um, and so we go through that process of dealing with the people who Paul was pleased with. And Paul defends himself, after dealing with the church order issues, he defends himself in terms of the fact that he is not valuable, but what he is delivering, the word he's giving is valuable, and his office is important to defend because of the fact that it's about giving glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he argues for the importance of performing duties, the importance of opposing false apostles, and the importance of fulfilling promises and being generous to the poor and keeping vows. Now, part two, chapters 10 through 13, is his part where he's dealing with the minority who were not participating in the discipline properly and who were supporting the super apostles, the apostles that were not real apostles, but they were claiming a sort of superiority to Paul. And so there's a rebuke. Paul defends his authority and he goes through a process of talking about his own labors and sufferings as a way of commending himself, but talks about how that's foolish. Chapter 12 deals with uh, the revelations and visions that he had that are things that other people had not received. And he talks about the third heaven there, which is, we talked about how the first heaven is the atmosphere, so to speak, the place where the clouds are, where the rains are delivered. And there is space. And we have all of the celestial bodies. And then we have the third heaven being heaven, where the throne of God is. And so those are the things that are dealt with there. So we come to the end, and Paul is continuing to offer warning. And he's going to talk about what he's going to do when he gets there next. So it's a, a fairly, relatively simple section. So go to page 2 of the outline. We have 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 4. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before, and to all the rest... That if I come again, I will not spare, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Okay, so first he deals with process. So this is the third series of in-person discussions he's had with the people in Corinth. This is the second series of discussions about the issues, right? The first one had to do with the early founding of the church, and the ones after that, they start to have issues. So the second time he was there, he was talking to them about issues. This 
this third time that he's coming will be the second time he's talking about the issues. And there's been letters that are going back and forth about things in the interim. So this shows Paul's patience in process and how he goes through a process of multiple discussions and rebukes and at the same time does not wait forever for the sake of order and for the sake of combating error. So these issues were already public, but Paul had not brought charges to deal with some of these things in a church court yet. But the reference to two or three witnesses is a threat to bring things to the court. And notice, he is not saying, I'm just going to convict you. He's not saying, I'm a bishop who can just simply call you forward and make you deal with this, and I'm going to find you guilty. He's saying, I'm going to serve as a prosecutor and bring it to your church court. And so look at the way that there's submission there. An apostle coming in and dealing with this by following process, going to a court. Now, public trials, what's implicit there, he's not going to spare. That's not a, public trials are not a fun thing. They are not an easy thing. They, they are something that is difficult both because they are public, but also because of the fact that when you are against a party that opposes you, it is a, a difficult sort of struggle. Paul asserts that his intention is to bring things to the church court. And when we think about this, he's talking about stuff that's already been witnessed. Now, sometimes a church court needs to investigate something so it could send two or three members of the court to go investigate a matter so they can report back as witnesses. But he's saying, hey, I'm going to bring witnesses who have already seen this stuff. This stuff has already been established. So he's talking about moving quickly when he gets there, going into an indictment, not into an investigation. So then, one thing I want to point out that's a useful process element here, uh, look at uh, Roman numeral 4. Okay? In, in Western law, we have a principle called habeas corpus, which is Latin for like, possession of the body or something to that effect. I should have looked it up again, but it's the corpus's body. Um, and so this idea of, of who has possession of the body. And so in Western law, there's a principle that you cannot be imprisoned for any sort of significant length of time without charges being given to you, and then you having a right to be able to come before court quickly to not be detained. So this doesn't exactly apply over. That term doesn't exactly apply over. There's, there's uh, the right to know what your charges are. There's other ways this re- is referred to. But this is sort of the most famous, um, the most famous legal principle that's closely associated. Someone who's prosecuting, the person who's offended, must establish some claim of observable sin to prevent trials from becoming fishing expeditions. Okay? So imagine somebody brings you on trial and says, you know, hey, I think you're doing some wrong stuff. What stuff exactly? We'll find out in trial. You know, that, that, that would be a ridiculous scenario to find yourself in. And so the, in, in Calvinist countries, there's been sort of an a emphasis on the adversarial system where one party brings trial, brings charges to a trial, And that party, there might be some sort of limited way in which the court has the ability to investigate or ask questions, but you're typically not having the court unless the court has a public dealing uh, to deal with, like, for example, rebellion or something like that. Typically, the court is not the one bringing the charges. So the prosecution brings information. The other party that you're in conflict with brings the information And the earlier stages of conflict resolution are where information gets established, especially step two, so there can simply be witnesses that come. And so what you have is clear charges about some particular action or failure to act that's a violation of some particular law of God. 
And so the idea that a charge should have those things included as opposed to sort of a, a, a court calling you to appear and just looking for something to find. All of us have sinned, and enough investigation will find that. The goal is not to figure out how to find people's sin. The goal is when there's public sin for it to be dealt with, or when there's ongoing sin where somebody won't repent. So what we want to do is we want to go deal with stuff with the minimal usage of resources, and in particular, the household is where that happens. You know, parents, you can quickly correct children, and, and husband and wives, you guys interact about stuff. And so the idea that you, you're dealing with sin there, as opposed to everything kind of being litigiously dealt with and brought to a court. The Apostle Paul is dealing with a matter slowly. He took a long time to take it to court, even though it's a big deal. He tried to push people and rebuke people and deal with things without a trial to get people to repent, and they wouldn't do it. And so now he's going, fine, this is the final warning. I will call witnesses. We will proceed. I will prosecute you if you do not repent. You want to see me be mighty in your presence? You are tired of me being a paper tiger? You are tired of me being a monster on Twitter and bashful to your face? When I get there, I am going to press things clearly. And so that's what he's doing. He's pushing there and requiring that there be repentance. So this idea that uh, there is a requirement in the adversarial system that there's a bringing forward of charges by a person who is offended. So church courts have sort of a mixture of what you might call the adversarial system and the inquisitorial system because of the fact that in step two of a process of Matthew 18, what you have is people having conversation where there's discovery of stuff and people are asking questions and there's all this kind of conversation. But you have to have a person bringing forward charges for things to keep moving. And so there is a, an emphasis on the idea of a person who is the offended party being the prosecutor as opposed to some sort of standing office of prosecutor. All right, uh, page three. So one of the other things we have is the presumption of innocence is emphasized here. The prosecution, Paul, uh, must establish guilt by biblical evidentiary standards before a guilty verdict is reached. And so he has two or three witnesses. So this idea is laid out there. So we get the presumption of innocence from biblical law which is why you don't start out saying, you know, somebody brings a charge, you're, you, have to, you have to prove that you're not guilty. No, the idea is that you are not guilty until there's a sufficient amount of evidence brought against you. Again, what are the things that people should rebuke for? Notice the Apostle Paul has been very slow to bring things to a trial. We want evidence of settled malice. So a person is showing hatred toward their brother and they're not repentant. Or they're showing hatred toward God and they're not repentant. You've shown them clearly what the sin is, and they won't repent. Or there's a cankered corruption. Again, those are, this is the language I'm stealing from William Perkins, but I think it's memorable and useful. Cankered corruption of doctrine. So there's this sort of biblical doctrine, and the, you, know, you bring that doctrine, and that goad hits sort of this sore place, and the person goes, ah, and they hate it. Right? Like, there's a golem-type noise in response to whatever doctrine it is. And, and so if there is a cankered corruption of doctrine where somebody doesn't want to submit to what the scriptures teach, there's a need to press forward. When there's public sin that won't be repented of, or when there's a criminal type of grievousness to a sin, you have to push forward. So that's a reminder. These are the kinds of things that we should be rebuking and pressing forward on and not finding excuses to, to lay rebukes everywhere. D, public process is a display of might. 
It's a display of strength. And it's a risk because of the principle of restitution and punishment of wrongful accusations. Right? When you bring accusations, you have to put a lot of effort in to pressing them forward. And furthermore, if you bring accusations and they are wrong and there's any sort of you know, malice or lying associated with it, there is supposed to be a penalty that comes from the court for wrongful accusations. Verse 4, let me reread that for you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Okay, so here there's a relationship between Christ's weakness in dying and the fact that we are to be weak in, in that we die to ourselves, we sacrifice of ourselves, and that we don't have everything that we would need to make everything we want to have happen in this life. But there is also a power of God where Christ was resurrected, but in which we are resurrected, that we're made new men, we're born again by that resurrection power, and we will be resurrected. And so we will be resurrected physically, but we have a spiritual resurrection and the power of God is shown in the work where we apply what God commands and we rely upon Him. So the power of God is shown in doing duty, including, for example, dealing with conflict in churches. Verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Okay, so whenever somebody brings a challenge, the first inclination is to be defensive. But here's what we're called to do in Scripture over and over again. Somebody brings a rebuke to you, and what you do is you pause for a second and you wonder, is there any truth to this? Even if it's not totally true, even if it's not perfectly true, can you examine yourself before you get defensive and before you countercharge. Get the log the, out of your eye before trying to get the speck out of your brothers. Now before you bring accusations at all, also do that. But examining yourself. And the other thing is, if there is in this examination a consideration of the particular thing, the particular sin, the particular accusation, and whether or not there's anything to it, you want to also examine yourself, especially if you find yourself to be in sin, to say, am I in the faith? Do I believe the gospel? Now, there are a number of ways that people talk about self-examination that are dangerous, and there are also a number of ways in which people can try to minimize self-examination. Sometimes Puritans are made fun of as those who encourage constant navel-gazing, that you should be looking and saying, I don't know if I'm saved, maybe I'm... You know, I, I've sinned over here. I sinned yesterday and this earlier today. And, and so maybe, maybe I'm not elect. Okay, I'll tell you what. If you're human and you're elect, you will find sin. Okay, Lord Jesus Christ is not one of us in that sense. He is human, but he is not fallen. But for all of us who are fallen, we're going to find that there is sin. And you will not be free from sin in this life. So, if that's the case, the absence of sin in total is not the basis for assurance. And if you wait for that, you will never be assured. Furthermore, if you look to good fruit to say, I will be assured of my salvation and I will know that I'm in the faith if I see any good works. Well, here's, here's the funny thing. 
in order for a work to be good, it has to be done in faith. And if you're trying to figure out, do I have faith? Am I in the faith? And you look at your good works to figure out if you're in the faith, guess what you're going to have to do when you look at your good works? You're going to have to go, well, was that work commanded by the law of God? Okay, great. And did I do it in faith? And so you already have to know whether you had faith in order to look at your good works and determine if they're an evidence for you of whether you have faith. Because you can do any external work out of a wrong motive. So it doesn't simplify the matter. Right? Everybody, wants, everybody wants to make it objective and simple. Is it, were you baptized? Lots of, bap- lots of people get baptized and are not sick. Okay, you're doing good works. Lots of people do good external works and don't have faith. They're not good because they don't have faith, but they look good. They're like, you know, plastic fruit. Looks great. Now, the presence of faith is the thing. So here's how you test whether you're in the faith. When you doubt if you are saved and you wonder, am I a Christian? Do I have the faith? Do I know Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ in me? You need to go and see, do I understand the gospel? And you test what you think to what the scriptures say. You go through the scriptures. When you doubt your salvation, you go back to the scriptures and you examine the promises and you say, do I understand this? Do I understand what these words are saying? Do I understand the gospel? Do I understand who Jesus Christ is and what he did? And you can be as certain that you are saved as you are, that you understand and believe the gospel. The level of certainty that you can have about your own salvation is the level of certainty that you have about whether the gospel you understand and believe is the gospel in the scriptures. So that should hopefully drive you to know the scriptures well. Your hope and assurance of salvation is not in yourself and the absence of your sin. It is not in your good works or any fruit produced from your faith. Your faith itself is not the basis of your salvation. You believe the promises of God and that Jesus Christ has done all of the work necessary and as sure as you are that that is true is the level of certainty that you can have about if you're saved. So don't test yourself by saying, am I doing good enough works to know that I'm in the faith? Don't test yourself to see if you have absence enough of sin. The principal motive that we are called to have to put off sin and to put on good works is gratitude. The law reminds us of our guilt. It shows us of our need of salvation. And it shows us what good works are. When we see that we are guilty and we believe that Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins, we believe in the grace of God then that should bring gratitude out of us, springing forth and give us joy of salvation that we can do good works for the glory of God out of gratitude. So the motive out of which to do good works is not to make sure that you can have certainty that you're saved. That will yield a fearful and slavish obedience and not the obedience of a child of God. Now, when you're examining somebody else, you cannot read their mind. You know that? Hopefully you've heard that enough. So what do you do? You look for a credible profession of faith and answerable behavior. 
Do they speak the wise words that are the gospel? Do they acknowledge the lordship of Christ and his ability to give us law to obey? Do they seek to have holy relationship by seeking friendship with the church rather than the world? Or do they seek to apply the law of God for righteous action and to know when inaction would be sin? So these are the things we look at. We look for credible profession and answerable behavior. And that means that when somebody is rebuked, do they deal with it by going through the conflict resolution process that we have studied in elaborate detail? Page 4, verse 7. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable. though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction." So I love the fact that Paul keeps harping on this claim that he's like too rough in writing and, and weak in person. Like they're just like constant hammering of it. He's just like, you know, I'm writing to you roughly right now so that I don't have to be rough in person. So let's do that. All right? Great. So this pushing on the point that I am being clear in writing, I am laying out the issue in hopes that when I get there, this will be resolved. Wouldn't it be delightful if I got off the boat and everybody said, Paul, we've all resolved the things. We all agree. These things have happened. The super apostles have repented or been kicked out, and the minority have either been kicked out or repented, and this is all resolved. No worries. Let's go talk about superlapsarianism, huh? Like, let's do the thing. That would be fantastic, right? So then you have the enjoying of all the time together, and you're discussing the decrees of God, as opposed to dealing with church trials. So that's Paul's statement of what he's hoping to see. So his call is he says, first, now I pray to God that you do no evil. Now, is, he, is Paul pretending there to think that it's possible for them to be sinless in this life? No. He's talking about the removal of external evils that would necessitate conflict resolution. So what he's praying for there is blamelessness. Blamelessness. Then, he gives a reason why. Not that we should appear approved. Not because I want credit for everybody to go, look how awesome Paul is in his church planting ministry, and look how many people signed dedication cards or whatever. This is not the concern. But instead, that you should do what is honorable, even if we seem like we're not apostles. Right? So he's saying, even if I'm disqualified, do the right thing. Be honorable, regardless of whether I'm qualified or not. And so he's saying, this is a focus on the glory of God, in other words, not the glory of Paul. Verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth before the truth. So this is a duty to advance the truth. We've talked about the Ninth Commandment a lot recently. But the Ninth Commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the Shorter Catechism gives a really great brief way of explaining what that means. Okay, so here's what's required. 77. The Ninth Commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man 
and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing, right? So truth and reputation. Truth and reputation. Now, that what's forbidden? The Ninth Commandment forbids whatsoever is prejudicial to the truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. So the concern for truth and reputation. Verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Okay, so when, when we are weak, when we are weak, that's an opportunity for God to show his strength. You may remember that theme being back in chapter 12 as well. When we are weak, it's an opportunity for God to show his strength. The strength of others that we help is something that we should rejoice in. And the glory of God is on display when God gives us strength or gives strength to others that we're helping because it gives glory to the message. It gives glory to God and His gospel rather than the messengers. So we should pray for the strength of others and for their maturity and for their completeness. So that strength, maturity, and completeness are emphases that you find throughout the New Testament. The strength to do duty, the strength that's given by wisdom, fortitude, the idea of maturing, right, being matured to reach the knowledge that has been given to the state the church is at, and completeness, a full equipment. You may remember, for example, in Ephesians 4, it talks about how ministers or officers of the church are given for the purpose of equipping the saints for ministry. So there is a fullness of equipment, there is a maturity of person, and there is a strength to use all of that. That are things that we rely upon God for. Verse 10. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness. Right, so I'm asking you with clarity to deal with what needs to be done. And I'm giving you the threat that I will proceed if necessary when I get there. And the hope is that the threats and the clarity will make it so that I don't have to be sharp when I'm present. And instead that the authority that I have which the Lord has given me to give you knowledge and not to destroy, that will be used. So this idea, edification and not for destruction, this is a pun. Edification is you build an edifice and destruction, you tear something down, right? And so he's talking about edification in terms of the building up of the soul, right? To be educated, to be edified, to be taught is this structuring, the building of the soul. And so this building analogy, which relates to the temple, which was emphasized in the first letter to the Corinthians, is also being carried on here. And it applies to individuals as well as to the church as a whole, as well as to local churches. And so Paul is saying, God gave me authority to edify, to build. The authority was not for the purpose of destruction. If there is destruction, it's going to be a protective or defensive destruction. And so the use of church censures, for example, which calls curse on a person, involves putting a person under curse that they might repent so they can be built up, and to protect that which is being built. So the idea is the authority is for building up in knowledge. It's for building up the church. That's a service authority. Page 5. Finally, brethren, farewell. <coughs> Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So now, what we have is two main sections here. We have the greeting and we have the benediction. So the greeting, finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. This is have all the gear, have all the equipment, be mature, and then be of good comfort. This is a repetition of the command to be strong, have fortitude. So we see these things being emphasized and repeated. Then to be of one mind. What is this about? This is about share the same confession. This is about a covenanted uniformity of doctrine. Second, we go from that covenant uniformity of doctrine to live in peace. That means be peaceable, be a peacemaker. Use the rule of behavior that has been adopted, the covenanted uniformity. Right? If you are constantly seeking to behave outside of what the church has come to understand to be acceptable behavior, you're going to be constantly generating conflict. Peaceable behavior is being careful to not bring charges that are unwarranted, and also to be careful to not behave in ways that are chargeable so that you might advance the witness. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So here's this idea that if you depend upon the strength that's given by the Holy Spirit, speak the truth as it is in Jesus, and live in peace, seeking to be a peacemaker, you have expectation that God will bless and that He, who is the God of love, the God who seeks the good of those who are his people and he seeks the good of the other members of the Trinity he will be with you and that's a promise that you will overcome and conquer over and over again you find in the scriptures promises of the presence of God for example the promise that God would be with the Israelites as they enter the land the promised land was a promise that he would be with them to empower them to conquer the promise that the Lord Jesus Christ would be with the church when he gave the Great Commission was a promise that he would be with us so that we could conquer when we go forward with the Great Commission The promise that he'll be with us is a promise of success. So in other words, we have expectation that the God of love and peace will be with us to cause his own glory, our good, and our peace, our blessedness, our prospering in the earth. That there is a promise for that. So then, we go to verse 12, and we see, greet one another with a holy kiss. Remember, what we have is examples of Holy kiss, embrace, the right hand of fellowship. These are things that fit into different places. If we lived in a more godly society that was less sexualized, it may be appropriate for more people to kiss each other. But given our current society and where things are, I would encourage you to exercise a holy kiss only with those people whom you have in your household. And perhaps some of those people that are within the laws of affinity and consanguinity that you would find it appropriate enough that they would not be offended. So you might be talking about an aunt or an uncle or something like that. Okay, so keep the holy kisses, you know, in those bounds. I would encourage especially, that though there are places, obviously there's places where husband and wife should give each other a romantic kiss, also the example of a holy kiss can be given there and that you can show the idea of welcoming in that way. I would encourage fathers to give your children Holy kisses. Kisses that are an example of the love and affection that you have for them. And I've encouraged mothers to do the same. And so those are things where that can be exemplified. And perhaps in the next generation, they will be more free as a city on a hill where they are more capable of seeing these things used in a wider way. Future generations can enjoy the blessedness of the holy use of signs of affection 
that we cannot currently enjoy in the same way. With the embrace, I would encourage that we limit this, that men embrace men, or again, the same sort of bounds that would be applied for the holy kiss. And then, that women embrace women, but that we generally seek to avoid, apart from you know, relationships of, of close family or something like that, the embracing across sexes. And then, the right hand of fellowship, I would encourage you to use it and to desire to be able to show by extending the hand the building up of relationship and the honoring of each other. Now, verse 13, all the saints greet you. Here we have this ending of the greeting, and the idea is that Paul, where he is present, the saints that are with him, are giving greeting through him. This is the, the acknowledging of each other, the extension of greeting. So there's not just the physical things like the holy kiss, the embrace, the right hand of fellowship, but there's also greeting, the acknowledging of each other, the building up of relationship. These are priestly behaviors that encourage bond, encourage attachment, encourage relationship. So hospitality, sharing in goods, being generous with each other, giving each other the physical acknowledgement of each other with the right hand of fellowship, the embrace, the holy kiss, giving greeting, acknowledging each other's presence. These are all things that build the bond, that build holiness of relationship, that build hedges. And if we give those things out to anybody and everybody, then there's no difference between the way we embrace members of the church and the way we embrace the world. And so that is a way of demonstrating our holiness is by caring for each other and building up relationship in those ways. But now, to the Trinitarian benediction, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, we're referencing the Father here, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So this is a valuable Trinitarian text in which we have the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit all being referenced here. And this is a Trinitarian benediction so that there is a reference to the divinity of each of the persons here. And so we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is his demerited favor, his, his giving of, of salvation in the fullness of it, not just being justified, not just being forgiven of sins and counted righteous, but also the work to sanctify, to renew, to build up. The love of God. God desires our good, and if he desires our good, our good will be accomplished. And then the communion, or the koinonia, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That is the communion of the saints and also the communion that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ through his vicar, the Holy Spirit. The Pope is not his vicar, the Holy Spirit is. And so when we think about the communion there, there's the sharing in gifts, a sharing in blessing, a sharing in power, a sharing in mission, a sharing in doctrine, a sharing in ordinances. And so there's a basis for unity there. There's that sharing of things so that we can do the work together. So there's this calling of Grace, love, and communion with God for the church in Corinth. So there's a pronouncement of blessing there. And this, in, this constitutes, in, in calling for this blessing, for those who are unrepentant, there's a call for God to bring grace to cause them to repent. For those who have already repented, there's a call for God to give them good things in their repentance. And then this is ended with the statement, Amen. And you know the classic teaching that I would give to you on the word Amen. It means that there's agreement. It's an assertion of what was just said, a repetition. 
And when you use it at the end of a prayer, like it's used in that benediction there, then when you say amen, you are joining in the prayer. If you withhold your amen, you are not participating in the prayer. Good prayers, you should always join your amen to. Bad prayers, you should never join your amen to. And there is your duty to pay attention. When you hear the amen and you haven't been listening, you should have a mild panic. Where you go, I don't know. Is this stuff I should be saying amen to or not? If I don't say amen and it was a good prayer, I'm going to miss out on blessing. And if it was a bad prayer and I say amen, I'm going to participate in curse. And so, careful what you say amen to. And be careful to pay attention to prayers. Now, I stand open to comments, questions, and objections from the voting members, those with speaking rights as regards uh, Second Corinthians.